Isaiah 11, 1 through 5 is where we're beginning today a new series that's going to take us uh, this month to the end of this month to, uh, to Christmas Eve uh, as we're talking about our coming king. Uh, I have a cousin first cousin who married a young man, uh, I say young, they're older than me, uh, but they were young when they got married, uh, and he was born and raised in Palestine. He's a Muslim. Uh, they've raised three beautiful kids. He's an American citizen now. All that to say, a few years ago, uh, he sent me a message on Facebook, and it kind of took me by surprise. We don't usually talk about faith, uh, although I pray for them all the time. But he said, he asked, why do you Christians celebrate Jesus's birth on December 25th when there's no proof that it actually happened then? And I knew he's a good dude. He wasn't trying to pick a fight. He's genuinely curious. And so I, I wrote back and I said, well, it's true. We don't know precisely what day he was born on. So we're not really it's not like we're celebrating Jesus' exact birthday. We're celebrating the fact that he was born at all, that he came into the world. And here was his response, and I, I thought this was remarkable. And I quote, he wrote, his miraculous birth was a blessing to man, and his return shall be even more. And it was a reminder to me that Muslims agree with us on some things. They don't agree that Jesus was divine or that he died an atoning death for our sins, but they do agree with us that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, and that he's coming back someday. I bet you didn't know that. That's something that we share belief-wise with them. Now, I, I bring that up because at Christmas time, we have all these emotions, we have all, all these uh, thought patterns we go through. We get nostalgic, at least I do. And some of you are too young to be nostalgic, I understand. And if you're not, if you're not thinking about that, that Christmas when you were five yet, you will someday. I do that. I think about Christmases when I was a kid, when my grandparents were still with us. Those are happy memories. I watch uh, the same old movies every year at Christmas, and about half of them have Jimmy Stewart in them, just to let you know. Um, I, I love... Uh, at this time of year, I listen to musical artists that I don't usually listen to. The rest of the year, I'm not listening to Bing Crosby or Karen Carpenter or Nat King Cole, but this time of year, it just seems right. And that's fine. But then there's a spiritual nostalgia that I think we need to avoid, and that's the, the spiritual nostalgia that says, I'm just going to focus on the first Christmas. I'm just going to focus on the baby in the manger. I'm just going to focus on, you know, eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus, right? When there's so much more to the story. See, my, my Muslim cousin gets it, and a lot of Christians don't, that Jesus didn't just come into the world, he's coming back to the world. For centuries, Christians celebrated something called Advent, and many still do. That's not part of our Baptist heritage, but it's not a bad thing. Advent was Christians identifying with the people who lived in the years before Jesus, who looked forward to the Messiah and thought, come, Lord Jesus, come. There's, a, there's, a, there's several songs that we sing at Christmas that make reference to this. O come, O come, Emmanuel is one. You might know that one. Come, Emmanuel, come and rescue us. Ransom us from this darkness. You might wonder, uh, when, when, you ever hear, when you hear the quote that's so often referenced from Scripture at Christmas time, the words of the angel on Christmas night, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, you might wonder, when is that actually going to happen? Because you see what's happening in Gaza. You see what's happening in Ukraine, Sudan, maybe even in your own home. And you think, where is this peace? Where is this goodwill? Well, that's coming. That's in the process. Right now, it's happening from soul to soul, from, from heart to heart. It's, it's happening as, as God brings peace to the chaos 
of our world. One soul, one heart, one family at a time, but someday it will be complete. There's a verse to the, to the old carol, Joy to the World, that doesn't get sung anymore. It's the third verse, and here's how it goes. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. The curse is a reference to Genesis 3. And how from the time sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, that's when death came. That's when hatred came. That's when racism and violence and war and, and disease and every bad thing you can name came into the world. And so the curse is in the world, but God is redeeming it little by little. We want to talk in this series about when that redemption is complete and what we can do to help make this world a better place in the meantime. All right? So with that as an introduction, here's Isaiah 11. This is where we're going to be until December 24th. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. I probably don't have to tell you this, but we're heading into an election year. In less than a year, we'll be voting on who's going to be president for the next four years. And that's always a time of anxiety for people. It's, we're fortunate to get to choose our own leader, but it's always a time where you think, what's going to happen? Who's, who's going to be in charge and what are they going to do? And the good news for us as Christians is no matter who wins next November, the more important fact is there's a king who's coming. There's a king who's going to reign over this world forever. And this is what this, this chapter is about, Isaiah 11. There's certain questions we can answer through this, and that is, who is this king? What kind of king will he be? And what difference should that make to us today? So the first question, who is this king? I know we're sitting in church, so you know the answer, but he's not named here. Instead, Isaiah calls him the stump, the, the, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, or the branch that, that comes from his roots. What is he talking about? That's very insider language. Whatever you do for a living, you probably have your own insider language with you and your colleagues, and people outside don't know what you're talking about. This is insider language to the people of God. Because they knew, the people who first read this knew exactly what Isaiah was talking about. Jesse, that he references here, is the son, is the father of David. Yeah, the David who ruled Israel. Remember the story, maybe you don't know it, but most of you, I would bet, do. That David was born in Bethlehem. One day when he was a, a little kid, either a young teenager or a small child, uh, his, his, the prophet of his nation, Samuel, the spiritual leader of the land, came to his house, and he came secretly because he was on a secret mission that the king couldn't know about. King Saul was not a good king, and he was leading the nation down to ruin, and Samuel came to anoint the next king, the successor to Saul. He said, it's one of your sons, Jesse, line them up, and they all lined up, and of course, they were all tall and strong and impressive and handsome, and Samuel said, well, they're, they're all good-looking guys, but the next king is not here. Do you have any other sons? He said, oh yeah, there's that one. What is his name? Yeah, David. 
He's out in the field with the sheep, and they brought David in, and he said, he's the one. He brings out his bottle of oil, and he anoints the young David as the next king. And David goes on to become king of Israel several years later, Israel's greatest earthly king. He made Israel the largest and strongest it's ever been, even to this day. He made it one nation under God. He didn't build the temple. That was his son Solomon, but he laid the foundation. He laid the the groundwork, you might say, for the building of the temple. He inspired the writing of the Psalms. In every way, he solidified Israel as a nation and he taught them to serve the Lord. But in the time between when David reigned and when Isaiah is writing these words, it's been hundreds of years and most of the kings between David and Isaiah's day have not been good. They've been rulers who didn't rule with righteousness or justice. And the current king, the one who's on the throne when Isaiah's writing is a man named Ahaz, who is not only a a terrible political king, he's, he's weak and he's spineless and he's a coward, but he's also a man who's not faithful to God. And the nation, uh, which was once strong and mighty and never lost a battle is now tiny and, and fearful and faithless. And so Isaiah writes to say, it looks like the tree of David has been cut down. The promise that God made all those years ago that there would always be a son of David on the throne, it looks like that's gone to the wayside. It looks like Israel is history. In fact, Isaiah himself knew that within the lifetime of some of those who knew him, Israel, Judah itself would be carried off into exile and there would be no more land, no more nation of Israel or Judah. He says, think about when you chop a tree down, it looks dead, but if you don't do something with that trunk, what happens? All of a sudden, shoots come popping out. Green stuff. I've done this, right? You work so hard to chop the tree down, but it's it's not dead. He says one of these shoots is going to be the branch. That's a term, branch, that's used six times in the Old Testament, always to refer to a coming king who will deliver the people, the Messiah. So who is this king? What is he going to be? Well, he is the branch. He's the one prophesied. Now, the next question, what kind of king will he be? Verse 2 tells us, it says the Spirit of God will be on him. The Spirit of God will be upon him. In other words, he's going to rule like God would rule. And and I don't don't want to cause controversy right now. I don't want you to get distracted because I'm about to delve into the world of politics for a minute because I want you to see the difference between our rulers and the coming king. So think as Americans, again, I love being an American and I think we have, uh, as they say, the worst political system the world's ever seen except all the others, right? I I think we're very blessed to have the system of government we have. But think about our, our rulers in the last 50 years. They all have slogans. They all have promises they come into office with. When, when I was a teenager, Ronald Reagan was president. His famous slogan was, it's morning in America again, which is a beautiful image. And, and, you know, a generation later, here comes Barack Obama with a very similar statement. He said, I'm coming to bring hope and change. And then after him comes Trump, who says, I'm coming to make America great again. And after him comes Biden, who says, our best days are ahead of us. And do you sense a theme here? Our earthly rulers all come into office promising that because you've elected me, things are going to get better. And you can judge for yourself to what extent that happened or didn't happen. But I want you, I think it's noteworthy that the promises that our coming king makes, that Jesus makes for his kingship are very different 
You can sum it up in two words, righteousness and justice. And those are two words that come up over and over again in the, in the Old Testament. And sometimes they're used as synonyms. Righteousness and justice are basically the same. But often, other times they're contrasted. And, and I think that's the case here in, in these promises that, that, it, that Isaiah makes. So let's talk about those. I got to do this quickly. So stay awake for five minutes, would you? All right, so Righteousness. Righteousness is the Hebrew word shedek. It's a word that means to be in right relationship with God by conforming to his moral standards in every way. There are certain things that God has said about humanity and how he wants us to live. And we live in a very individualistic time that says, I need to chase happiness at my own standards. I need to decide for myself uh, who I can be with and what I can do with this person and how I can spend my money and, and what I can do with my thought life and what kinds of things I can take pleasure in. But righteousness says all of that we conform to God's standards and we do what he says because he knows best. So a righteous king would be a king who has actual integrity. That's something we don't see in many of our leaders anymore. Integrity where they mean what they say, where they, they live out the, the standards that God has, has proclaimed. They, they are blameless in every way. They have no skeletons in their closet. They're not uh, paying anyone money to keep silent about something they've done. They're, they are flawless. Not only that, a righteous king will be a king who makes the whole world righteous. You know, this language in here, this kind of scary language where he says, I'm going to strike the, he, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and he'll, he'll slay the wicked with the breath of his mouth. That's, that's talking about how there is judgment coming and there will be no sin under this king. It will be, it will be eliminated. But then, then there's the term justice. And justice is the Hebrew word mishpat. Uh, and it means just administration of the law that God gave to Moses. I realize the law of Moses isn't the most exciting part of the Bible. I, I don't know any Christians who say, you know, I really love every year when I get to Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. I, I just, I haven't met those Christians yet. But when you study the law of Moses, what you see is that yes, there's a lot about sacrifice and there's a lot about ritual, but there's also a whole lot about taking care of those less fortunate. A lot of the law of Moses was meant to say, this is how you run a society so that it's fair, so that everyone's cared for. In fact, God said, if you will do these things, if you will keep this law, there will be no poor people in your land. You'll be the first nation in the history of the world where there's nobody poor. He wasn't promising everyone would have the same amount. That's not a promise that's found in scripture, but he was promising that everyone would have more than enough. Well, how? Well, by, because everyone would be trained. You take care of the orphan. You take care of the widow. You take care of the immigrant. You treat them the way you would want to be treated in their position. You, you, don't, you don't charge interest to your neighbor when he comes and borrows something from you. Uh, you, you. When you harvest your grain, and you recognize that there are people in your community that don't have land anymore because somewhere in the past they mismanaged it and they lost it and they got foreclosed. Maybe you yourself bought their land from them. So what you do is you leave some crops just hanging on the vine or on the plant so that they can come and, and feed their own families because otherwise they'll starve. And every 50 years you have a year of jubilee. This is a beautiful concept. It's found in the book of Leviticus. Every 50 years, any, anybody that's gone into slavery, you go free. Anybody that's got debt, the debt is canceled. Anybody whose land has been seized because they couldn't pay for it, they get their land back at no charge. What is that? That's God's way of stopping generational poverty. That's justice. 
And the king of justice will, will come into this world and he'll make this a world where everybody has enough, where people treat each other fairly. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Righteousness, you might say, is very vertical. It's focused on God and on doing things his way, whereas justice is very horizontal. It's focused on how we treat others and, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus, in fact, said that when he was asked, what's the most important commandment? He said, there's not one, there's two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to think about our political system today for a moment. Again, love being in America. But right now we have two basic groups that compete for our allegiance. We have a group that talks a lot about what we would call righteousness issues. They talk a lot about holding on to the ancient standards and, and not deviating from, from standards of right and wrong just because certain people today find them inconvenient and, and, and protecting the right to worship because uh, religious faith is important to the formation of people's souls. And, and we can look at all that and say amen. But this particular group, when, when you come to them with issues of justice, they say, well, you know, the widow and the orphan, the immigrant, the free market will take care of them. That's not our problem. That's not our business. Just let them do things the right way and take responsibility for themselves. And then on the other side, you have a political class that talks all the time about issues of justice and of racial equality and taking care of the poor and of treating the immigrant with dignity. And, and, and we can say amen to all of that because that's biblical. But then when you talk to them about issues of righteousness and, well, what about these standards of right and wrong that are being thrown in the trash? And they say, well, but you can't legislate morality anyway, which of course is folly because every law is legislating morality. I mean, the fact that you say you can't steal, that's legislating a moral standard. So you look at it and say, there's good and bad, but nobody rules the way God would. Because when Jesus rules, we will live in a world without sin. And we will live in a world where people treat each other well, no matter what. We are looking forward to a world of justice and righteousness, and that is coming, and that's good news. He'll be the first ruler who ever kept all of his promises. Third, what difference does that make for us today? Because last time I checked, Jesus of Nazareth wasn't on the ballot. So what difference does it make for us today? We know that 700 years after Isaiah, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. You know something interesting about Nazareth? Two things. Number one, it's not mentioned in the Old Testament. That's how obscure the town is. But secondly, the word Nazareth comes from the Hebrew word netzer, which means branch. How about that? He is the branch that was promised. He did live a life of perfect righteousness, the only human being who never, ever sinned. He also lived perfect with perfect justice. He took the side of those who were oppressed. He, he stood up for those who were forgotten, even by the religious establishment. And then when he knew that someone needed to pay the price for our sins, he, the only sinless one, volunteered for the job. And so at the cross is where we see God's righteousness and God's justice come together. Because God is too righteous to allow sin to continue, but he loves us too much to let us pay the price. He paid the price for us in Jesus. And yet, even all of what I just said, none of that completely fulfilled what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 1 through 5. You see, a, a few hours before he was arrested and taken to Pilate and sentenced to death, 
Jesus said in John 14, three words that we've heard all our lives. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And most of my life, Christians have quoted that and said, oh yeah, that just means that uh, Jesus, after he died, he went up into the sky and he's building a little mansion for me to live in when I die. And that's not what that means. He means I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the cross to prepare a place for you in my Father's kingdom. Because if I don't die in your place, there's no room. But in my Father's house, there are many rooms. If I die for you to prepare that place, there will be room for you no matter what you've done. And then he went on and said, if I go, I will come again to take you to be with me where I am. He's talking about his second coming. I'm going to prepare this place for you by dying for you. And someday I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring you home to the place where I will rule forever and ever. Amen. And that's good news. That is the best news you will ever hear. That means everything you hate about this life is going away because the king won't have it. Have you ever noticed that we love stories with happy endings? Of course you do. When you were a little kid, you loved the, the fairy tales that always end and they lived happily ever after. Today, the most popular movies are always, or novels are always stories that end with, with hope, with redemption. Where does that come from? Have you ever noticed that critics don't like the happy endings? You know, Steven Spielberg's probably the most successful filmmaker of, of our lifetime, and yet he's only won one Academy Award because critics say, oh, his movies are too optimistic, they're too hopeful, that's not realistic. Okay, make a movie about the, the Holocaust, we'll give it to you, that's sad enough for us. But, but no, any, pop, any, any critically acclaimed movie or book is, tends to be downbeat, and yet we love the happy ending. Why? Well, Tim Keller says it's because in our hearts we know that we were made for a story that ends in joy. Even if we don't believe in God, we are made in His image. And so we know when we read or watch or hear a story that ends with joy, we somehow recognize that's what we were made for. That's the way the story is supposed to end. The way it, not just the way we want it to be, but the way it really will be. When we read the story of Jesus, including his death and his resurrection and his return, we recognize that's our story. That's the day everything sad comes untrue in the words of Tolkien. That's our story. My question is, is it your story?